one of the big takeaways, you know, to me on that is the games industry does such a good job combining both the culture and the technology part of things that there needs to be something that's a creative and artistic breakthrough with the product as well as a technological breakthrough and the, the immense power that you get by fusing the two together. Hey everybody, welcome back to the final episode of Unsolicited Feedback in this season. I'm Brian Balfour, founder and CEO of Reforge and the host of the podcast. Today, this is part two of a conversation with my co-host, Fareed Masavat, and our guest, Andrew Chen, who's general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. In the first part of this episode, we went through a bunch of rapid-fire uh, predictions around 2024, around more or less IPOs, M&A. We talked a little bit about product managers and a number of other factors. But in this part two episode, we go deeper on whether or not we're going to see a new big emerging growth channel emerge in 2024. The conversation took a little bit of a turn that I wasn't expecting. We talked a lot about the conditions that need to be met for startups to play in that world. And then we also continue into a conversation about some of the things that Andrew's been learning about around new growth techniques that are emerging in the gaming space right now. Um, before we jump into the episode, just make sure to go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for the email list where we have a bunch of exclusive clips, content, transcripts. You can also jump onto LinkedIn, search my name out, join us in the conversation about the topics we talk about in this episode. Other than that, let's jump in to part two. I feel like I'm seeing more and more examples of companies getting some major growth off of channels who haven't, that haven't really been thought of as growth channels before. When we talked with Nabil, we talked about how Midjourney has really grown off of Discord. Andrew, the article you sent over to us around this game Spellbreak, which I haven't played, talks a lot about how they really grew within Reddit as an example. So those aren't new channels. Those products have existed for a while, but there's these examples emerging of products that are finally growing pretty substantial products of businesses off of the backs of these things where those examples didn't really exist before. Yeah. Maybe it's because of this content dynamic that you're talking about. Like these products are just so well suited for those pieces. But I do find that as like an interesting trend that we're seeing right now. It's a long-term trend because I've always thought that inherent to any marketing channel is the competition between marketers. That's kind of the meta <laughs> that happens. The meta you know, game is right? marketing, which is competing. yeah, and now robot marketers. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, that's the craziest part. Yeah, and now yeah, eventually robot marketers, which is why you know, and I've written about this many years ago, but like the law of shitty click-throughs is that every marketing channel degrades over time, and it's degrading over time primarily because of use and followed yeah. by overuse within that. And so every marketer then needs to compete with each other to find new channels that they can use before each other. Now, the interesting thing with the marketers finding new channels is they're they're constantly trying things and copying each other. But then there's asymmetrical things where, for example, one of the reasons why you'll find there's a lot of products, famously Tinder and Pinge and you know Facebook and many others, grew on college campuses but they eventually all leave college campuses because the volume isn't there, right? And so college campuses are a great place to start, but eventually to get the volume, you have to go kind of broader than that. And so because of that, all the big companies end up focusing on the big channels. And, you know, we could probably name like what the big 10 would be, you know, it'd be like SEO, SEM, referrals, ads. Um, you know, Instagram Facebook ads. ads. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you could just like cre create a list of, you know, what the what these like top 10 channels are. And these are the channels where you can put a billion dollars of marketing dollars into year over year over year, and you could build 
large multi-dozen person teams. And so the bigger companies always focus on those. And so your edge as a new company is always to find the cutting edge thing that no one else is doing. And then in order to make your growth channel defensible, ideally your product fits the channel in such a way that where others can degrade it as quickly, right? And so what that means is if someone else sees that Dropbox is doing the give get disk space thing, you know, that they did in the early years, it's like, well, what other products can actually do that? Other storage companies, sure. right? So it's, it's it's like not, there's not that many of them. And so because of that, that's not as tapped out versus it turns out, hey, so-and-so wants to share photos with you. Okay, well, that's photo apps. Okay, how many photo apps are, are there? There's thousands of photo apps. And so a value proposition like that, I think gets degraded very quickly. So yeah, so yeah, Brian, I think, I think, you know, this is why I think in the, in, in the grand meta of kind of marketer versus marketer competition, the most interesting insights I think come from being involved in these smaller, if you're a smaller company, you know, being involved in smaller channels, smaller communities and kind of growing from there. And then if you're big, trying to have enough scale and enough word of mouth that you're able to continue to, to squeeze ROI out of the bigger channels even as you scale. And some of the biggest blowups of all time in the tech industry have been very much like paid marketing related. Mm-hmm. They've been like getting over, over over your skis because actually you don't have enough word of mouth. You don't have yeah. enough organic to counteract the higher and higher CACs as other co- similar companies that fast followed you into the channel also do the same thing. And so, you know, w- whether whether we're talking about the, the Groupons or Gilts or fab.coms and all those like th- those are all good examples where they they just couldn't sustain their advantage yeah. in, in in a market. A- Andrew, do you mind talking through what the law of shitty click-throughs is because I think you referred to it really quickly, but I think it's actually an important like high-level takeaway for folks building right now because I I, I you wrote it a while ago and I and I'm not sure how well known it is at this point. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Well, now it's so funny. There's so many generations of like all this content. This is like a historic uh, essay at this point. So yeah, so the observation that 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 uh, that I make about uh, the law of shitty clickers is if you go back to the original banner ad. So there was a banner ad on uh, the predecessor to Wired.com in the 1990s, and the banner ad says, you know, it says something like, "This is like brand new. You've never seen something like this, but like soon you will." click here. And it was like this graphic. And I think it blinked, right? It was like a big thing. And it had a 60% plus click-through rate, right? So you can imagine that's insane, right? And so then you fast forward 20 something years, the average click-through rate on a banner on the internet is south of 0.1 you know, percent. Okay. So that's that's one example. Second example is like email marketing, if you look at email marketing back in the day, I mean, there was a there was a time on the internet, amazingly enough, where spam did not actually exist and commercial email messages does, did not exist because there were no internet businesses. And so as a result, the only emails that are being sent by people, you know, again, this is kind of internet circa like late 1980s, you know, and so on. All of that stuff was, you know, just humans communicating with each other. And then, so the first time that people started to use spam and spam was originally created on, on Usenet, which is like a very old school bulletin board kind of thing on the internet, it was very effective. The click rates were very high. Email open rates just generally overall were 30, 40, 50%. And then if you look at kind of broader email click-through rates, open rates and click-through rates now, it's like now low single digits. SMS also has gone through a whole period of that. Like, you know, Brian, you were just saying at the very beginning of this, that you know you're getting too many phone calls and like <laughs> yeah you know, we're definitely done with it a lot with of phone. like text like my answer rate on exactly, a phone yeah, call used to be a hundred percent 
and now it is zero totally, percent. Yeah. Now, now it's like, now it's like I don't right. answer my phone. Yeah. Like if you want to, if you want to talk to me, text me first, <laughs> and then if you want to, if you once you're done texting I, me and I'm there, yeah, you know, you say around, and then it's like yes. I had this experience them, right? yesterday like, where <laughs> someone said you can call me anytime, but I I had never called them before, so I sent him a text in advance, and then I realized, oh, he might have his text set up that if you're not in your address book, not to filter them. So then I sent a Twitter DM to tell the person I'd sent him a text to tell him that I was calling him so he would answer the phone. Like this is the kind of like yes. craziness we have like put ourselves in now. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And so 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 the law of shitty clickers is that every channel that performs always degrades over time. It only goes in one direction. And so if you have every channel in the world is constantly degrading then you have to know first off where you are in in the channel's kind of history as to whether or not it's going to work and by the way this is one of the things that sucks is that by the time that you read about a marketing channel or a marketing tactic or whatever on twitter it's probably already been fully utilized by the time that there are companies that are writing case studies enabling marketers to use the channel Right. That's when, you know, it's fully, fully yeah. utilized because, you know, there's even tools, right? So there, there's a sort of like onboarding people in mass. And so as a result of that, you know, you're always kind of trying to make the trade-off. Like if you think of that as like kind of a X axis or Y axis of like the performance of the channel and where it's trending and then the volume that you can get from the channel. And so if you think about your business, that's why oftentimes in the early days, you're basically relying on high performance low volume channels. And these are things that look like literally your personal, you know, if you're a SaaS founder, it's like your personal network. Like that is like the lowest volume, highest, you know, thing you can possibly do. Then you're like on Twitter trying to get your investors to like endorse your stuff, you know, and then you're on, yeah. And then, you know, then maybe you hop to one of these community things, whether that's like Hacker News or you're the, in the, in the R slash startups, like subreddit, and you're kind of building that up and then eventually you get to a point where you're just like, oh my God, we need to do podcasts and SEO and you know, we need to be buying ads and we need to be doing event marketing. We need to be doing all these other things as things scale. And inevitably you move towards higher volume, right. lower performance things. And so your ability to move into higher volume, uh, lower performance things depends on, I think, how much organic traction you're really getting because the organic traction is kind of blended in. Which is also why, by the way, you know, when, you know, going back to like the, the economic situation, when budgets get cut, the first things that get, get cut are all of these low performance, high volume things. Because if your product's actually good, you should be able to sit on some degree of just volume coming in for a period of time before you really see the business kind of suffer. I think so. the point about the organic traffic is interesting, right? Because there's so many companies who don't cross that bridge to the higher volume channels. And I think what you're saying there is like, actually your ability to to cross that bridge is based on your organic traffic. Like if your early high performing, low volume stuff doesn't also spur some type of organic spread as well, then crossing that bridge basically becomes impossible. And I'm trying to reflect on why that is. So I think that old school marketers would call it brand. So I'm just thinking about the analogy of all of the flash sale websites, Fab, Guilt, One King's Lane, there were like 12 of them. And they were all driven by a lot of paid ads and then email on top of that, right? And both of those are channels that we're getting. I mean, 
I think my email inbox was like single-handedly destroyed by the flash sale websites because they figured out, oh, sending an email every day works. But the whole thing about the law of shitty click-throughs is it's not about time. It's about volume on the channel. The more collective volume and not just there's the volume that you send, fab emails get worse the more emails fab sends. And we learned this at Zynga, the more requests we send on the Facebook channel, but also the more sent by everyone, the worse it gets for everyone. So there's a tragedy of the commons thing as well. And so, but none of them stood out, had built meaningful organic retention, engagement, Mm -hmm. brand, that when the volume went up, people said, oh, I want to click on the fab one. Because I love fab. Like fab is my thing. It was just, they're all competing on price. So I don't know. This is a little bit revisionist. But my thinking is the organic matters, one, because you have a a hardcore base of people who will come to you whether you market or not, right? And they will refer, et cetera. And that's like a foundation. But it's also the other thing that your messages on the channel resonate better because people have a positive affinity towards you in some meaningful organic now what we would call brand way. Like what is the value of brand? The value of brand is that you can sell the same thing for higher prices, right? Like that's what that moat really is. But I think it's also that on the same channel, you will get higher click-through rates because people like find you interesting. Like why do you think enterprise software companies advertise in airports? It's so that when they get cold called by a sales rep, <laughs> they're like, oh, I've heard of Zoom. You know, it's not just one of the thousand people that are calling them. I mean, examples of this, I heard from a founder who is doing college campus stuff that the fraternity presidents and sorority like leaders are constantly getting reached out to by startup founders like every single day. It's a known channel. And so their email inbox is full of startups. If you have no brand affinity, if no one's ever heard of you, you're just the same as everybody else emailing that sorority president or that head of data on the developer side or that influencer on the brand side. So I think the organic matters because it it makes you filter through the yeah. noise. Well, and, and, and maybe I'll give the like, just mathematical version of this as well. You know, I, I agree with everything that you, you you said for you. You know, one of the things that that folks often target is they target a three to one LTV to CAC, right? That's kind of like a common, you know, kind of thing. Now the question, you know, when startups use that number with me is I always say, well, is that blended or unblended? And the reason why that's important and in the question of this unblended con- or blended concept is basically, is is that accounting for all the organic traffic that's coming in also? Or is it just the channel? Meaning if you get half your users from just word of mouth and the other half comes from buying Google ads, let's say, and you tell me three to one, okay, well, if it's three to one just on the Google ads, what that means is you're actually kind of in a healthier you know, place because you're actually earning $6 for every dollar you spend, not $3 for every you know, dollar you spend. Give it, if, let's say it's 50-50. And that can be really good because that means that you actually could potentially ramp up spend and there's a, there's a cost curve on that. Like usually the more money you spend, the worse the, the, the performance gets, but it means that there's more juice to squeeze, right? The challenge is when you have three to one and it's, and, and it's a blended number. Well, that means that you're, you're at the ceiling, you're done. Like th- that channel is as good as it's ever going to be. Maybe there's some optimizations here and there, 
But if you get 10 or 20% optimizations, I'm happy. You're definitely not doubling the size of the channel. There's no more volume to be gotten. And what that tells me is your next job is to go find a new marketing channel, not to squeeze performance out of this existing one. And so it's one of the reasons why the ideal version is that you have actually 60, 70, 80% of your growth is organic. And then you've maybe done some experiments with some forms of kind of more traditional marketing, because what that means is that your blended ratios are much, much better. And why are your blended ratios better? Yeah, you could, you know, call it maybe it is word of mouth. I think, you know, the other thing that brand hits for you that you kind of reference is that the conversion rates, you know, might be higher if you're more highly branded. I remember hearing that some of the various ads, like Super Bowl ads that have been, you know, run by mobile gaming companies, like there was a Kate Upton one for a machine zone that they did many years ago, that a lot of that was because of the idea that it would actually ultimately not not drive user acquisition using that ad, but it would affect their other multi-hundred million dollar per year marketing campaign that it would increase the conversion rate there. And and the arbitrage was kind of having the reach drive, you know, higher conversion, not to drive UA right at right. that moment in time. But yeah, I mean, I think going back to the original point, you know, marketers are kind of in perpetual warfare with each other on this stuff. And the alpha that you get, you know, is from finding new channels, being clever about the thing, the underlying quality of the product. And if you kind of assume if if there's a efficient market hypothesis of economics, there's an efficient marketing hypothesis in, in this case, where ultimately, if everyone's executing kind of at the highest level, then it really does become about the quality of the product and the underlying brand. I think the other great takeaway, which is this idea of the natural continuum between the size of a channel and its responsiveness or its effectiveness, and that a lot of companies make the mistake of going towards the scale channel too early, where that's the most competition because the companies with the largest budgets, the largest sizes, the need to scale have to go there. And so as a result, it creates an opportunity where there's actually inefficient stuff in these smaller, harder to scale, earlier channels. Like you mentioned calling all your friends. <laughs> it, no one else is doing that because they're your friends. So you should you should do that. And that startups should, the earlier stage they are, really be focused on these non-scalable, unique opportunities that match their products that it is hard for a larger competitor to go do because it doesn't make any sense for them. So yeah. like just I, things that are much more hand-to-hand. And I, I think that's good advice. Yeah, I think breaking into these big channels like requires momentum. And mm-hmm. it, the difference is like trying to like jump across a chasm from a standing start versus a running start. And you got to create the running start, you know, to have the chance to jump over it. And that typically requires kind of what, what you two are talking about. Okay, this intro combo turned into much larger than the intro. <laughs> but, you know, we did have, <laughs> I we did want to talk a little bit about Andrew. I mean, you've been spending your recent time in gaming and wanted to talk a little bit about some of the growth things that you're kind of learning in gaming. And I think this is an interesting topic because I feel like a lot of the modern growth thinking from the past, I don't know, let's call it decade and just like how to measure like Dow Mao and retention and virality and, you know, this flywheel loop type of thinking actually emerged from gaming, you know, a number of years ago, right? All three of us have our roots in social gaming and that early platform. 
I have not returned to gaming myself. I actually, after my gaming stint, said I would never go back to working on gaming anymore. But it feels like there's a little bit of this like revitalization, this reemergence of gaming, especially with AI. And I'm interested to hear a little bit about Andrew, what you're seeing, like in terms of things that are starting to break out. Because I actually wonder if we're going to repeat the cycle. Yeah. Yeah, no, for, for sure. Yeah. And m- many folks may know I was investing in kind of next gen gaming as one of my responsibilities at Andrews and Horowitz, kind of doing consumer more broadly over the first like five years of my time there. And then we recently in the last year launched the Games Fund. And so I've now moved to being 100% focused on the games industry and the games ecosystem. I kept all, all my previous boards, so I'm still on the board of Substack and and Reforge and many others, but you know, in terms of new investments, I'm I'm focused on gaming. And there was a couple of things that really intrigued me about the sector that make it really interesting and exciting. So maybe I'll start in the future first, and then I'll I'll go I'll go to the past actually, because I think that's important too. But I, I think many folks know that games are a big business, but they don't quite know how big it is. And it's it's literally, you know, movies, film, TV, books, magazines added together. Mm. It is massive. And it is, it's both a combination of the scale of gaming, which, you know, by the way, I'm including everything from like Candy Crush and Wordle and kind of these like casual mobile kind of things all the way to like AAA, you know, if you're going to play Call of Duty Warzone or Elden Ring or Baldur's Gate 3 or whatever, like that, that entire spectrum I'm including in this. And, you know, and so you're literally talking about billions of consumers and it monetizes really, really well because. It is also one of the forms of entertainment where you can get not just a movie ticket out of somebody, not just like, you know, 20 bucks to go to go to the latest IMAX, but there are in the latest monetization models, which we'll talk about, you can spend, you know, in, in the latest Blizzard rendition of Diablo, you can spend over $100,000, right? And so the ARPU is just very, very high. That's one of the big, I think, breakthroughs in, in, in the product. And so you have like kind of the business being a really strong and interesting business. And then I think you have the fact that there's a lot of software trends that are making it, you know, huge. So for every time there's cloud computing, there's, you know, all this generative AI stuff, there's increases in in software engineering productivity, that all affects and helps the games industry in a way that at the end of the day, these games are it is code, it is software, right? Um and so I think that's that's been very interesting. So underlying there's been this, you know, massive increase in in, in productivity in the industry that has led to bigger and more complex things being developed over time. And then going back to, you know, Brian, maybe your original point on this, which is that because um, gaming has, has gone through this big evolution, I mean, it used to literally be, you go to a Best Buy, you spend, you know, 50 bucks, you get an Xbox DVD or, you know, a Nintendo cartridge or, you know, whatever, and you bring it home and you play it and that's it. We've now switched to a mode where many of the biggest and highest longevity franchises in the industry, you know, whether you're talking about Fortnite or Roblox or, you know, many of these others are actually free to play, right? So they're freemium, which means that the audience for these products is very, very large. You know, Roblox famously has something like 75% of all of sixth or seventh graders or younger are like active users of Roblox, you know, for instance, just huge, huge footprint. And games that have, you know, 100 million active users kind of monetizing at high levels. And and so what you see is, you know, if you were to use the tech light lingo, you'd say they move from a package software basis to now something that looks like more of a SaaS 
kind of recurring revenue, either either microtransactions, you know, kind of like thing. But by the way, battle pass and these kind of seasonal things where each each season you like buy a, a recurring subscription look like SaaS. So there's been a bunch of foundational kind of, you know, changes there. And then frankly, like, you know, maybe the last thing I'll add is just culturally, it's become incredibly important because you're now seeing this intersection of video and youth culture and some of the biggest media properties this year were Last of Us, which is a Sony PlayStation game turned into an HBO series. We saw the Super Mario movie do extremely well. We saw Harry Potter franchise do extremely well as, as Hogwarts Legacy, you know, as a, as, as a game. That game has made as much money as any of their movies at this point. And so I think we're just seeing this kind of like crossover of entertainment that it's kind of breaking through the walls as to, you know, what it is. I think that the main difference in building a game studio company versus a tech company is the nature of this like MVP versus not like I would say building a game is kind of like the ultimate like anti MVP (laughs) because it's in an an established market often. Maybe we'll talk about VR and Web3 and some of these other kind of ancillary offshoots. But if you're building something that's like a PC console kind of thing, you're typically further down in the S curve. And so people kind of have expectations as to how it should go. And so often, you know, you build a startup, you raise money, and for the first three or four years, the cycle of it is that you are building, 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 building. Maybe you do a couple play tests here and there, but you kind of don't have signal as to the retention and the traction of the product for potentially, you know, three, three, four years into the mix, as opposed to a world where that, that we've all gotten used to in tech, where you try to build your MVP in six months and get it out there and you should feel kind of like embarrassed, you know, of the first version. That's the famous kind of Reed Hoffman, you know, saying about this. So first, what that means is the financing model and the development cycle has to be quite different. It's almost like a deep tech kind of investment profile. Like you are raising five to $10 million to build a vertical slice or they call it a beautiful corner or, you know, there's a lot of words for this, but kind of some uh, like a prototype for what you're looking for. And then you're raising additional money just to get it out the door. And so so then what that means is from a growth standpoint, okay, if you've been working on your product for four years, then there's kind of, you know, within culturally within the games industry, there's much more of an emphasis on the launch mm. process. Because if you've been developing something for four years, then having a one-year soft launch actually might seem kind of normal, you know, within that, because there's a lot of things to fix. And so I want to reference our mutual friend, Seth Sivak, who recently was co-lead of World of Warcraft over over at Blizzard. And, you know, Seth, Seth's fantastic. And he has a great video on the A16Z website about building these viral games. And he had a company, that Proletariat, that was building a game called, called Spellbreak. And what he did was, as a case study of kind of what modern games marketing looks like, is you basically first drop a trailer or some assets and some announcements of what the game is going to be you get all those people who are really interested in in the product to basically, you know, and, and we've seen this in, in tech products, right? Um, where people go go do a beta sign up, you know, process. What they did was very interesting. You know, what they did was they basically took that, put them all onto a Discord, and then they built a, you know, very, very large Discord, hundreds of thousands of of users waiting for the for the beta to drop. And they basically used that Discord to just start building a community months ahead of the actual launch. And so they would get all of the beta assets. They'd get you know little sneak peeks at the videos. They'd get you know all all these different things. And they would instead of 
doing, I think, what we're doing right now in the tech industry, which is going straight to Twitter and just posting all the assets and all the videos and all the things, basically would arm their community with all of those assets and then tell them to go to Imager and Reddit and you know all the other places and begin to like post all the content. And so there was a big wind-up process of just doing that. Simultaneously in the games industry, there's also much more of a emphasis on creator-led launches. And so this is the like low volume but high relevancy thing that's happening right now, which is you go maybe not to like Shroud or Ninja or one of the like top people, but you kind of find this tier of creators that has big audiences, has millions of subscribers on YouTube, but maybe is are lesser known. And you partner with them and you basically say, hey, here's the trade. The trade is, you know, you're gonna, we're gonna give you exclusive, you know, kind of access to to beta versions of the game that you can play. And you can basically drop Steam keys, which are a way to basically give their audience um, access to the beta. And we're gonna let you distribute that this to your audience. So again, you know, it's all very indirect, right? It's letting their community and then letting creators actually tell the story for the company as opposed to the company just going out and just, you know, send, sending Steam keys. And they kind of do all this ahead of the actual launch launch. And what they're doing is they're basically building a, a huge Discord, you know, because the more people that sign up for the beta, the more people that sign up for Discord, and the more people that then, you know, they can push out to get excited about the beta. And you kind of continue and continue and continue. And then eventually you get to a point where there's launch day. And you've, if you've done a good job, you can then get a huge spike in people who are trying the game. And you kind of have this quote unquote golden cohort of people coming in. And this whole, you know, kind of thing could be several quarters of orchestration leading up to it. And this is kind of the modern, you know, instead of going Tinder going on the USC campus and going fraternity to sorority to fraternity, this is kind of this is almost like the digital form of that, right? It's digital, it's like literally going to individual creator communities, going to individual Reddits, going to individual Discords and trying to promote all of this. And then in in the end, because gaming is so visual in nature, and every time you drop a photo of like a cute like panda bear pet that can like you know that you can you're going to get access to in the game people go wild for all these like little assets and little things it just matches kind of the zeitgeist of like the marketing channels that are working you can get kind of keep get people hyped kind of along the way you know last thing on this which is i think in contrast to the tech community most tech founders are relatively less deliberate about their launches you know you throw up a google form Oh, you want to be part of the beta? Great, done. Okay, we're going to email you like the download link, done. Like that's that's like what a soft launch looks like versus trying to really cultivate the community, going to influencers, doing all these additional things. And so I think that alpha is pretty interesting to try and like potentially for the tech industry to close on because I do think that kind of creator-led, highly visual kind of media using the communities to like promote your product. These are the kinds of things that I think gaming is doing very well that that I think a lot of a lot of tech founders will will find, you know, useful. Well, I mean the, the drip of content makes sense, right? It's like people love consuming content about their interest areas, right? And so if you've got a product that basically generates this this type of content, it feels like another form of content consumption. I think kind of reading through the spellbreak post which we'll drop in the show notes was that they didn't really just drip the content, but they were able to create what seems like real kind of user activity around the content pre-launch, which I find interesting. It was take this content and post it. (laughs) You know, you leak it. You leak it as the consumer. Yeah. 
you guys put it out there. Like that was, and they did a bunch of stuff with like memes, which is also cool. You know, it's like, it wasn't just like, you know, you know, things with the panda. It was like, they would take memes and they would make memes and the community would make memes. And then they would take the top memes and they get the community to share the memes. So yeah, it was much more about kind of like a very organized kind of virality program. And it makes a lot of sense for these kinds of games that are, you know, network, multiplayer, franchise level, that in order to have a successful launch, you need a high density of like really engaged players willing to come over to like all do it at the same time and like drive what you would call the golden cohort, right? That the games require high engagement, high density to be successful. Like it is much better to get 10 people playing all together all at the same time than like 10 random people from 10 different places. My question for you, Andrew, is I have seen at least in our family that whereas when I was a kid, I would probably churn through 20 to 30 cartridge Nintendo games or a friend of mine would over the course of time. And it was like watching a movie, like you played it, you finished it, you moved to the next thing and you built this library that my son, who's 14 years old, basically plays Fortnite. That's it. And maybe Minecraft. And now at 14 years old, having owned an Xbox for a very long time, has a very small library. Like it's almost like the way my phone is now down to like one or two apps. And breaking through that, it has switching costs and network effects in a way that like SaaS products would have that didn't exist in the gaming market outside of maybe MMOs, et cetera, back in the, in, in the older days, that like breaking through that is harder and harder and harder. So it makes sense that you would spend a year building up to your launch because breaking those moats is really, really hard. What are the chances for an upstart studio <laughs> to be able to do that in this day and age? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, so I, I think, you know, Fareed, what I would tell you is that the fact that you can build these franchises that last and last and there's network effects and the whole thing is actually good, not bad, because what it means is that similar to tech products that can also build these franchises, you know, like we're going to be using Instagram forever. Like, like I fully expect that, like, you know, I, I look at Amazon and I, if, if they had a chart of my LTV year by year since when I signed up in, you know, 1997 or whatever, it's just gone through the roof like over yeah. over the last you know now i'm doing groceries i'm doing all sorts of stuff through them and i think the fact that these franchises exist is exactly what enables venture scale yep. returns i mean this is this is how you get a 10 billion dollar company so i think that that's good i think that the stickiness aspect means that in the same way that you can't compete with instagram by simply making another yeah, new filter yeah. profile <laughs> kind of thing yeah, that you have that it needs to be photo messaging like Snap, or it needs to have the kind of interesting, you know, permissions based model like Be Real, or it needs to have some, you know, it just needs yeah. to, you know, TikTok a like, different algorithm with to YouTube allow people to go viral in a yeah, completely totally. different, like, yeah, ancillary way. It's like if you look at YouTube, TikTok and YouTube, you'd say, oh, well, what TikTok did was they shrunk the video length. By the way, now they're increasing it again. They got rid of the feed. They made a vertical video. They, you know, they made all these different changes. And I think in the same way, no one's going to basically build a competitor to Fortnite simply by building another battle royale. I don't, I don't, I don't think that can that can work. But instead, you need to build something quite different. Now, the funny thing for it is, is like Valorant is a you know major release by Riot Games, and you know it's on track to doing you know especially once they launch in Asia and a bunch of other things. It's very, very, very easily a billion dollar a year revenue uh, game, and it's a three D tactical shooter, and it's 
not a battle royale. It has kind of, you know, it's more of a Counter-Strike competitor and it can peacefully coexist. And so can Call of Duty, which also has the same camera angle and the same guns. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit different age ranges. Like I fully expect for you that your kids will graduate into probably Warzone or Valorant mm-hmm. kind of within the next couple of years is my guess. As, as much as I think Epic would love to keep them in Fortnite right. forever. But you can only, you only get excited by, by shooting guys in banana suits for, you know, and like, like pinata, you know, llamas for so long. <laughs> Eventually you want to, you want to be, you want to be badass. You want to be a badass military, spe- you know, special operator. And, and so I think it's, it's a good thing that you can build these huge things, but you need to come in with a different angle. That's, it's actually one of the reasons why I'm particularly excited about all the emerging technology, because, you know, it's not enough that AI makes it cheaper right. to develop a GTA 6. I mean, that's great if yeah. that's true. But know, going from a great. billion but to 800 million doesn't like change the game that much, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think the more interesting question is, well, what are AI first genres that couldn't have been created before hmm. that now can be created, right? Or, or, or genres that maybe would have been considered like very niche genres that all of a sudden can be right. huge genres. And I'll give you an example of that. There is a long history of Japanese dating sims, okay, dating simulators. And what they are is they're basically like, you like play a character and then there's a bunch of like people in the world and you'd go through this kind of like menu-based thing and they tell you things about their birthday and like their thing that they're, you know, their favorite kinds of flowers and you're supposed to take notes. And then, you know, later on you have like conversations with them. And if you reference those things, there's a relationship meter that like increases, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But by the way, like in the end, like this is all human driven narrative stuff. And so what it means is that a human team of programmers has to go in and build these dating sims. Well, what what if there were a world that someone built an endless variety, you know, dating, you know, maybe this, the AI companions thing right now starts with something that looks like, oh, I'm chatting. You know, if you guys have looked at character AI, you know, oh, you're chatting with an individual character. Eventually that becomes like, oh, I'm talking to my virtual companion. And then by the way, eventually they have their own world around them. They, they're going to school, they're going on vacations. They're texting me with photos of like cool things that they're seeing and I could talk to them. By the way, they might introduce me to their friends. Now I'm talking to their friends, you know, et cetera. And like incorporating, you know, sort of what was a niche industry into something that sort of has endless variety. And I think that's an example, you know, Telltale Games famously has done a bunch of really amazing, almost like visual novels with choices. And, you know, right now you have to go license that from, you know, they did a, a, a famously a Walking Dead series. You know, they had to license the IP from from the folks involved with that show and kind of build that all out. Now imagine a world where somebody can basically copy and paste like a bunch of fan fiction and then boom, like you're in a virtual world, you know, all this stuff is happening. Like that's fantastic. I would love to see somebody pitch me on kind of a Roblox for interactive narrative fiction or Roblox for virtual companions where whatever weird niche thing you're into, you're into talking to, you know, like vampire world and there's a narrative and day one, you're just getting to know them. Day 10, something happens in the world, you know, their their family, um, you know, gets kidnapped. And then, you know, now you're talking them through, you know, other stuff and you can build these little episodes and, you know, all that, like, I think that's all great. And that's kind of like all AI first, you know, kind of genres. Similarly for web three gaming, Similarly for VR gaming, you know, these are the kinds of kind of cutting edge game studios where it doesn't take tens of millions of dollars to build kind of V1 because people will, it's earlier in the S curve. And so people will be more excited about just the it works feature over kind of like having the very, very best content. And so for a lot of what we're doing, you know, at the A16Z Games Fund, you know, half of our investing kind of goes into this, just thinking about 
this intersection of new technologies and how it enables new game studios. And then the other half of what we're doing is basically tech that's adjacent to the games industry. So that is next-gen game engines. That's all the you know generative AI stuff, whether it's for 3D and, and characters and worlds and NPCs that we've talked about. It's asking the question, what does next-generation Twitch look like? What does next-generation Discord look like? There's a whole interesting subculture of VTubing that's big in um, Japan, where people basically create avatars of themselves, and then they stream on YouTube and Twitch and these things. And so, you know, on one hand, wow, that's a little weird. On the other hand, you're kind of like, maybe that's where everything's going, right? Because that's isn't that kind of like a super mm-hmm. filter, you know, like a face filter? Like, like who would have thought that like face filters would have been, you know, and face tuning would have been such a big thing? Well, isn't the like next version of that is we're all digital. And, you know, if you want to be a werewolf that's streaming and talking about, <laughs> you know, technology, you can yeah. do that. And that's and maybe that's maybe that's normal. I've been thinking about this and I don't really have a good answer. So I'm curious about your thoughts on this. If you were a technologist who had invented some great AI way to either do workflow in a more efficient way and create assets much more effectively or allow for some kind of gameplay that didn't exist before, for instance. Do you think the opportunity is more in building great first-party like content, games, experiences, etc.? With that, say, like not building a games engine, but rather building a great game with that engine? Or do you think it's in this middleware tools creation like where would you encourage a founder to go like pixar made a lot more money building films than they ever did selling render or tools but on the other hand yes. adobe is like a way bigger company than say you know any first party film studio ever was because they went wider yeah yeah and and and, and you're in your citing kind of yeah maybe the most famous example of this right so lucasfilm owned yep. render man and was trying to get everyone to use 3D technology. And it was not very successful. They had very few customers. It was eventually Steve Jobs famously bought it and spun it out and turned it into a thing. And then and then it was it was still B2B for a long time. Pixar like was yeah. making television commercials. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't until several years in that they, you know, kind of got got the gumption to go and 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 really build yeah. Toy Story, almost a decade right, in the rest of you the know, history. Toy Story so, wasn't until nineteen almost a decade. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what I would say is we are not trying to predict that. We're willing to make investments kind of on both sides. Pixar is such an interesting thing because you needed Catmull and Lassiter together in one company to make it work. And I think if you had a world where you had like a world-class set of AI people and a world-class set of games people together, they could probably do something special and we would be very excited to meet that team. You know, I think what we're finding is there's a little bit more of one or the other. It's either a games team that is experimenting with AI and they're very interesting, et cetera, or it's a technology team that has developed a bunch of cool stuff. And then now they're thinking that they might go into gaming. And we haven't met that many kind of at the intersection. It's definitely going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. So, you know, we're, de- we're definitely, you know, keeping, keeping our eyes out on that. One of the most interesting parts about the games industry is that it has been sort of the you know, alpha geek, early adopter, originator and adopter of new technologies. And I think many folks may know this, but like, obviously the GPU was really driven by the games industry, 3D, you know, as a whole and like 3D engines. And obviously John Carmack's work in software was pioneering haptic feedback and devices first came in all the gaming controllers. 
and we're seeing this in VR and we're seeing this in, and and I think AI as well, it, that it's the first to, to adopt, you know, wh- one of the big takeaways, you know, to me on that is the games industry does such a good job combining both the culture and the technology part of things that there needs to be something that's a creative and artistic breakthrough with the product, as well as a technological breakthrough and the, the immense power that you get by fusing the two together. And so if I think about, you know, what a tech founder might take away from that, you know, in a lot of cases, tech has sort of been a little bit reductive with their product experiences. It's been very much about, I think we've had a decade and a half plus of thinking about tech as primarily a utility and something that about, it's about efficiency. It's about reducing the number of clicks to get to one point to another. And I think one of the really interesting things is as tech has permeated broader culture and society to also think about, you know, how to combine creativity and storytelling and brand and entertainment alongside, you know, sort of cutting edge technology. And I think, I think we have a big chance of being able to do this if in, in, in this next generation of AI yeah. companies, given that AI has su- such a, such a creative, you know, bent and to it. Actually, if you look at some of the most interesting successes, even in B2B software over the past like decade, a lot of them really are about a different culture of how to work as much as they are about features and functionality. Like look at Slack. Slack is kind of the same as HipChat or IRC, et cetera, but had a different ethos (laughs) and culture and style to it. Linear versus Jira is another great example where there's definitely differentiation on on features and functionality, but really it's about an idea about how you should work. And I think that there's a bunch of these examples and and I love this as the as the takeaway which is that it's not just about what you can do, it's about the story you tell around how you do it that can really differentiate. I mean superhuman is another great example of being as much about the story about how you should work as it is about the actual features or how you should do business. I think this is a really great takeaway for people because yeah, is it's not just about what widget you make. It's about how you should feel when you use the widget, <laughs> right? That's right. I love That's that. Right. Andrew, awesome. always a All pleasure right. to hang out with you. Cheers. Good luck and uh, have a great holiday, sir. Yeah, you too. Happy holidays. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode. Before we start the next season of Unsolicited Feedback, we're going to take a couple weeks off, but don't worry. We're going to be back in mid to late January. If you are on the email list, there's going to be a surprise and you'll get first notification of the first episode of next season. So make sure you go to unsolicitedfeedback.co, sign up for that email list for a bunch of goodies, transcripts, exclusive content. And then other than that, we hope everybody has a great new year and we'll see you in season two of Unsolicited Feedback. Thanks.